0: Mabry B. Gray, known to history and legend as Texas Ranger Mustang Gray, is the avatar of the dark side of the ranging way of war. If John Stark of Rogers Rangers represents the tough but honorable ideal of a ranger, Mustang Gray represents the vicious, vengeful, natural born killer element, giving rein to his darkest impulses in a deadly blood feud. That's what the conflict on the Texas-Mexico border was for most of a century, a blood feud stained even darker with a taint of racial animus. Texas won its independence from Mexico in 1836, but ownership of the borderlands along the Rio Grande River would remain in dispute for another decade and more. Filibustering expeditions and bandit raids turned the region into a theater of low-intensity irregular warfare that burst into full flame across northern Mexico when the United States and Mexico went to war in 1846. American forces, especially their supply lines, were harassed by Mexican Irregulars known as Rancheros. In a monograph titled Irregulars, Guerrilla and Ranchero Warfare in South Texas and Northern Mexico ...during the Mexican-American War. James Mills of the University of Texas... ...Rio Grande Valley writes... ...the Americans had to be on constant guard... ...since Rancheros and other irregular forces... ...roamed the countryside... ...and preyed upon unsuspecting victims. These Mexican guerrilla fighters tended to be well-armed. It was not unusual for each to carry two pistols... ...an escopeta, which was a short musket... ...a sword... Lance, and the ever-present Lariat, of which they possessed great skill in using. While the vast majority of these irregular groups were loyal to Mexico and fought for the Mexican cause, some were merely bandits who sought to profit from war and attacked both sides indiscriminately. To counter these irregular forces, General Zachary Taylor employed mounted volunteers that everyone knew as Texas Rangers. Taylor described them. One species of mounted force, peculiar to the western frontier of the United States, is efficient. The inhabitants of that frontier, from their vicinity to hostile Indians, are well-practiced in partisan warfare, and although they will not easily submit to discipline, yet take the field in rough, uncouth habiliments, and following some leader chosen for his talent and bravery, perform partisan duties in a manner hardly to be surpassed. Old Zachary Taylor had mixed feelings about the Rangers. Their work as scouts and spies was vital. The legendary Ranger Captain Ben McCullough probably saved Taylor's army from destruction and set up the American victory at the Battle of Buena Vista, which we'll take up in the next podcast episode. But the Rangers' indiscriminate killings of Mexican civilians and terrorizing of the local populace caused Taylor both moral qualms. "'and operational headaches. "'It's hard to win hearts and minds "'and keep your rear areas secure in a foreign land "'when your counter-guerrilla force behaves like brigands.' "'On the day of battle, I am glad to have the Texas soldiers with me,' "'Taylor reportedly said, "'for they are brave and gallant, "'but I never want to see them before or afterwards "'because they are hard to control.' Early Texas Ranger history provides ample evidence that Rangers' combat effectiveness and their overall behavior depended heavily on their leadership. Men like Jack Hayes, Ben McCullough, Rip Ford, Sam Walker. These were outstanding partisan leaders, and their commands performed like crack special operations units. In Taylor's words, performing their partisan duties in a manner Hardly to be surpassed. And these leaders could keep their aggressive and unruly men mostly in line. Not every Ranger captain lived up to that standard. And given that a contemporary referred to Mabry Gray as a moral monstrosity, it's not out of line to question his fitness to command. Mabry Gray was born in 1817 near Spartanburg, South Carolina, and his family moved to Texas in 1835 to be granted land in Stephen Austin's colony there. At age 19, Mabry fought in the Battle of San Jacinto, which won Texas its independence from Mexico. And during the Republic of Texas era, he was granted land in San Patricio County. Legend has it that he earned his nickname when he was thrown from his horse while he was out hunting on the Texas prairie, and he either killed a buffalo or a longhorn and made a lasso from his hide. He climbed up a tree and lassoed a passing Mustang, which he then rode back to his hunting companions, and after that, he was always known as Mustang Gray. That's the legend. He was also known as a killer. And he may have had his reasons. Some accounts relate that his family was killed by Mexican raiders. And his sister, there's an implication, at least, that his sister was gang raped before she was murdered. And then Gray vowed to kill every Mexican he found in the Nueces Strip between the Nueces River and the Rio Grande. This is a story that is highly plausible. That sort of thing did happen during this time period. It's also the kind of story that often gets attached to people to explain why they became killers. In the early 1840s, Gray led a gang of so-called cowboys who styled themselves the Men Slayers. And according to John J. Lynn, who was a member of Congress in the Republic of Texas, Gray's gang once accosted a party of Mexican traders, tied them to their wagons and shot them all and then stole their goods and one wounded man survived to tell the tale Good people were horror stricken at the outrage Lynn wrote, but no attempt was made to bring the criminals to justice Now We're often told that we shouldn't judge people in the past by standards of today. And there's some merit to that point of view. But bear in mind here that these are contemporaries of Mustang Gray who are horrified at his actions. Not all Texans by any means supported the indiscriminate killing of Mexican civilians horrific violence and booze tend to go hand in hand in frontier partisan history and gray had a reputation as a heavy drinker josiah clemens who was a mexican war veteran and a senator from alabama wrote what is generally considered to be a pretty admiring biography of gray in 1858 and he reported that uh, Mustang Grey always traveled with a pack horse loaded with booze in tow. It mattered little to him what it was whiskey, mescal, brandy, anything, as he expressed it, that would make the blood flow more freely, or, in the rude though expressive phraseology of one of his comrades, anything that would make the drunk come. So, Mustang Gray was someone you would clearly mark out as unfit for command. Yet, Captain Gray led a company of Texas-mounted volunteers out of Corpus Christi. They conducted counter-guerrilla operations in northern Mexico, where Mexican irregulars were picking off small parties of American troops and attacking supply columns as Taylor's forces moved deeper into Mexico. Mills writes, By August 1846, General Taylor and the bulk of his military force had begun to make their way upriver to Camargo. Taylor received alarming reports that large numbers of Mexican rancheros were assembling in the nearby countryside, led by Antonio Canales, the so-called Chaparral Fox, and Jose Maria de Jesus Carvajal. Throughout the remainder of the war, Canales and Carvajal controlled much of the rural areas of northeastern Mexico, and enjoyed a degree of success in harassing American supply lines by hiding along the roads and attacking small military forces and merchant trains. Robbing settlers of their money became the mainstay for irregular Mexican forces to acquire arms and ammunition. Captured Mexican guerrillas were tried by the U.S. military. If convicted, the guilty received death sentences by firing squad or by hanging. Of course, the Texas Rangers tended to dispense with the formalities. On at least one occasion, Gray's Rangers captured rancheros who escaped on their way to custody with the U.S. Army. Nobody believed that they had escaped, least of all General Taylor, and such incidents of indiscipline turned the general increasingly against the Texas Rangers. It's important to recognize that the irregular rancheros behaved with extreme brutality in their own right. This was a nasty, nasty form of warfare, leaving civilians caught in a completely untenable position. Here's Mills again. General Antonio Canales raided American supply trains moving from Camargo to Monterey whenever the opportunity presented itself and showed little mercy to those he captured. Mexican ranchers in the countryside sometimes found themselves to be in a no-win situation. If they refused to aid Mexican irregulars, they were harassed and their homes destroyed. Some women reportedly had their ears cut off as punishment for helping the invaders. On the other hand, if Mexicans suspected the locals of working with the enemy, they too were likely to employ violence to acquire information or to discourage them from giving the enemy any further assistance. So this was just a really grim, dark, and gritty form of guerrilla warfare that was going on in northern Mexico. Major Ian B. Lyles wrote a thesis for a master's degree from the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College in 2001 titled, Mixed Blessing, the Role of the Texas Rangers in the Mexican War, 1846-1848, It offers an excellent examination of the war of atrocity and counter-atrocity that Mustang Gray reveled in. Here's Lyle. On 23 February 1847, as Taylor's army fought for its life at Buena Vista, a strong force of irregular cavalry, part Lancers and part Bandits, seized an American supply train about nine miles from the village of Marin. The Mexicans executed and mutilated the 50 Teamsters, took the infantry escort prisoner, and burned what they could not carry away with them. Colonel Samuel R. Curtis of the 3rd Ohio Regiment, arriving at the scene on 15 March, describes the carnage. The bodies are strewn from this place two or three miles. These bodies are the wagoners and men under the command of Lieutenant Barber, attacked on the 23rd of February. They were attacked on a side hill, and the massacre continued throughout the entire length of the train. Major Luther Giddings of the First Ohio passed through some time later and wrote that the road between Camargo and Monterey was dotted with the skeletons of men and animals. Roofless and ruined ranchos and many a dark and smoldering heap of ashes told the disaster. Colonel Curtis realized the danger of such guerrilla activity along his lines of supply even before seeing the devastation for himself on the 15th. In his capacity as the commander of the American Garrison at Camargo, he wrote the governor of Texas on 2 March 1847 that all communication has for several days been cut off between this place and General Taylor's headquarters. Our last communication is dated the 21st of February, and the general was then threatened by a large army in front and a very considerable force in his rear. Private communications informs us that Santa Ana, who was the Mexican commanding general, had demanded a surrender, and General Taylor had replied to him to come and take him. Since that date, all is doubt, darkness, rumor. It is certain the general is besieged, and that too by a large force of cavalry in his rear. I believe the occasion requires a large force to raise the siege, and therefore request you to call out 2,000 mounted men. As far as possible, they should procure arms and ammunition and repair to this point as fast as companies can be organized and equipped. The call might be for four months' men. Mustang Gray's company arrived at Camargo first, and Colonel Curtis soon ordered them to convoy escort duty along the road between Monterey and Camargo. It was a fateful decision. Lyle recounts Gray's pre-war killings and his predisposition for killing any Mexican who came across his rifle sights without ever facing any accountability for his killing. Lyle writes, Clearly this was not a man who could be expected to expend much effort to distinguish Mexican guerrilla raider from Mexican non-combatant villager, as events would soon show. On 20 May, a large supply convoy departed Camargo. 100 loaded wagons, 500 men, some dragoons, and Gray's company of rangers. Major Giddings' unit, the first Ohio volunteers, accompanied the supply train as it made its way through the heart of the contested area between Camargo and Monterey. As they passed by the scene of the wagon train massacre outside Marin, Giddings notes that there Captain Gray and his rangers separated from the command for the purpose as was said, of obtaining forage. The column pursued its march a few miles further and encamped for the night at the stream near Marin. I was informed that one of the Texans had recognized a brother among the decaying remains of mortality in the valley, and with tears of grief and rage had insisted upon avenging his death in the blood of the first Mexicans they encountered. The vengeance of Gray's men was swift and indiscriminate. They murdered almost the entire male population of a nearby ranch, some 24 men. Because the local inhabitants feared for their lives, none would identify the perpetrators, and so Gray again escaped justice. Rather than search for those responsible for the massacre of the American Teamsters, these men vented their hate and frustration on the nearest group of Mexicans they could find. Guilt mattered not. I will post a link to... Lyle's thesis in the show notes. It's well worth taking the time with it. Um, It's an excellent uh, examination of the role of the Texas Rangers, not just Mustang Gray in the Mexican War. You'd think it would be hard to find much romance in a killer drunk like Mabry Gray, but you'd be wrong. There are legends that tell of him being rescued from captivity after the Battle of Monterey by a beautiful Mexican sweetheart. And Texan mothers sang to their children a ballad. There was a noble ranger. They called him Mustang Gray. He left his home when but a youth went ranging far away. I don't know. Maybe it was the catchy nickname. Mustang Gray came to a pretty ignominious end. He died Of either cholera or yellow fever in Camargo, Chihuahua in 1848. That's a decidedly unromantic end for a dark figure who haunts the borderland annals of the Texas Rangers. I'd like to thank our patrons for their ongoing support of the Frontier Partisans podcast and the Frontier Partisans blog. That's Cody Rush, Clint Richards, Jeremy Popple, Malcolm Brooks, Josh Buchanan, John Sweet, Hawken Horse, Bridger Larson, Matthew Campbell, Bridger Larson, Deuce Richardson, Bob Buckholtz, Ash, Harry Kaiser, Mike McGyver, Wade McKnight, Chaz Clifton, Alan Godseff, Jerry Nunnally, El Randolito, Matthew Freelive Free, Paul McNamee, David Rolson, and Rick Schwertfeger. I truly do appreciate all of you. Um, it, it means a lot to me that uh, you've got enough interest in the work that uh, we're doing here at Frontier Partisans that uh, you provide not only your your financial support to it but uh, that you invest your time in it. I, I value that and, and appreciate it greatly. As I mentioned next time uh, we're gonna take on another tale of the Texas Rangers during the Mexican War. This one uh, a little bit more clearly heroic. Um, the tale of, of Ben McCullough who acting as a scout for Zachary Taylor's army deep in Mexico, um, did such an excellent job that he probably saved that army from destruction and uh, allowed Taylor to move to favorable ground where he was able to defeat Santa Ana in uh, a decisive battle in the Mexican-American War. So uh, that's uh, next time on the Tales of the Rangers, and we'll see you down the trail.